In the epistle of James, the author teaches us not how to believe in Christ, but how, once we believe in Christ, to make our faith come alive and justify us, bringing us closer to God as we believe in his word. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, the podcast where we follow the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Should you care to email the program, get in touch with me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com questions, with questions about uh, our current lesson, lessons in the future, lessons in the past, or any topic about which you would like a spiritual answer. In addition, if you would care to make suggestions about our upcoming special episode before the end of the year, we've received a number of suggestions already, and I'm thinking now, they're they're all such wonderful suggestions, I'm thinking that I will uh, take them each about, they're probably going to be about five or six different topics, and we'll take about ten minutes or eight minutes on each one when we do that special episode. And normally this would be the point in the podcast where I would answer a question, but uh, because I'm leaving town and I've got to record quickly, uh, I think I'll just get right to the lesson. The Epistle of James. Uh, James is a fascinating work of scripture, one of those epistles where it's written sort of in a general way to it. It's almost like Hebrews where it's written to an entire population rather than the people of a certain city. In fact, Uh, Right at the beginning, James says he's writing it to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, meaning outside of Jerusalem. So, who is James and when did he write this? Uh, The general consensus among scholars is that there are three Jameses. James, the brother of John, or the two sons of Zebedee, of Peter, James, and John. And then there's a James called the Lesser James. And then most scholars agree that there is a third James, James the brother of Jesus, who was one of his prominent disciples after his death. Now we find in the book of John chapter 7 that while Jesus was alive, not even his brothers believed in him. Or that's what John, uh, the brother of James, the, of Peter, James, and John, that's what John claims. So I think most Christians probably assume, and I know I assumed this until uh, I had a chance to study the book a little more deeply, most Christians probably believe that the book, the epistle of James was written by James of Peter, James, and John. But what we read in Acts chapter 12 was it wasn't too long after the death of Jesus that uh, James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod Agrippa, just uh, about a decade. And so it's, it's unlikely that he was the author of this epistle. Now we find in that same chapter, so Acts chapter 12, In verse 2, James, the brother of of John, is killed with the sword. You remember, this is the chapter where Peter is locked up in prison, and then he escapes with the help of an angel, and then he goes to what's called another place. Now, Peter briefly reappears in Acts chapter 15, which is the, uh, the general conference chapter of where where Paul has brought back all these concerns from the Gentile world, all these Gentile converts. Uh, how do we treat Gentile converts? Do, do we make them first become Jews and then they can become Christians? Or do we allow them to become Christians without going through things like circumcision, obeying the law of Moses in every respect? This was where that, Acts chapter 15 was where that decision was made. Acts chapter 12 talks about the death of James, uh, the brother of John, in verse 2. And then in verse 17, Peter, before he leaves town, he says, 
I'm still alive, make it known to James and to all the brethren. Now this is an interesting verse because what it, what it says is that there is someone named James, who's not James the brother of John, that Peter considers worthy of special mention as he's leaving town, as he's getting out of there, which would indicate that James was the leader of the local congregation, if not the entire Christian community. Now, this is supported in Acts chapter 15 when they're having this discussion. It's interesting because Peter pipe, he, Peter chimes in with his opinion. You know, I you've all heard of this vision that I had of Cornelius right before I met Cornelius of these unclean foods, and I was commanded to ri- arise, slay, and eat. And that vision was interpreted to be an acceptance of people that were outside of the family of uh, Jacob. And then the general brotherhood argues a little bit more, but the, the issue is finally settled by James. And uh, he says, my sentence is this. And once he speaks, then everyone accepts it. They send out the letters. And that chapter, the, the 15th chapter of Acts, would give us to believe that James was actually, his voice was more respected than that of Peter. It's just an interesting side note uh, as we study the gospel. Now, a modern to give you a modern parallel, uh, when Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith was obviously the leader of the church. There was never really any question about when he founded the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There was never any argument about uh, who was the prophet, the president of the church. But when he died, there was some controversy around how that should be picked up and continued. And God didn't reveal to Joseph, hey, you've got to tell everyone a plan for succession. Uh, they just had to discover it. Not, I, I don't want to say through trial and error, but through difficult struggle. They had to discover the plan for succession of the church. Now that plan is well established, and the church functions as normally. When uh, the prophet dies, it's very well defined what will happen. But going back to the time of Jesus, we can assume that there wasn't a whole lot of clarity around how the church would be organized. And that, I don't, well, I shouldn't say we should assume. I would say if that were the case, that wouldn't necessarily conflict with what we understand because God's house on the one hand is a house of order, but on the other hand, we know that God reveals things line upon line, precept on precept. So although we understand that Peter was the prophet and the leader of the church and God said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And at the same time, we see that James seems to be acting as president of the church in Acts chapter 15. Now, which James was it? The, the, uh, the book of James or the epistle of James? I actually like to think of it as the book of James because this is, this is not what you would consider to be a normal letter. It's, it's actually very similar to the book of Proverbs. As I was reading it, it's more like it has passages that maybe for five or six or ten verses, they cohere together into one message, and then it moves on to another message that will be loosely related. And that's the structure of the of the book of James. So I, I would consider it a book in much the same way as the book of Proverbs is a book of the Old Testament. And uh, similar to the structure of the book of John, the first chapter contains an introduction to the concepts that will uh, that we will see throughout the rest of that book. So the go- I mean the Gospel of John. So in the book of James, we have the first chapter giving us uh, 
general introduction into what it means to be a disciple of Christ, and then more specifics follow in chapters 2 through 5. Um, to, to say a little bit more about the writing of this book, so um, the, the word, there's a word that you probably don't know. You all know the word anonymous, which means the prefix a means without, and, and nom is a word uh, meaning, or nimus, I should say, is a word meaning named. So somebody, something that's anonymous means that it is without a name or without a known author. Now, the book of James is what's called homonymous, which means someone wrote it who has the same name as someone you're probably thinking of. So it's a homonymous book written probably by James, the brother of Jesus, this third James, who wasn't prominent during Jesus's lifetime. One more implication of this is that, and we mentioned this early in, in the study of the book of Acts, it seems clear that Jesus always intended, and or at least the original apostles, always intended for the apostolic succession to continue as Jesus had set it up. When Jesus died and then Judas died, they immediately took action to replace Judas among the twelve. And they chose for his replacement somebody who had been with Jesus all along, who knew Jesus during his lifetime. To them, that was very important at the time. However, James eventually finds himself among their number as well. So this means not only did it continue right after the death of Jesus, but it kept going on. And James was not one of the believers. He obviously knew Jesus all along, but he was not one of the believers during Jesus's lifetime. This also happened in the case of Paul, who had a vision of Jesus, but did not know Jesus. He only knew the Christians after, shortly after the death of Jesus. And certainly, or if he had met Jesus, certainly was not a believer in Jesus during his lifetime. So that's a very powerful argument that, that Jesus always depended there to, uh, always uh, intended there to be 12 apostles, and that was the organization of the church that he set up, and he intended it to continue because they continued it themselves. Now, you might consider that uh, James was a, the, the apostle or the area president or the regional representative or the bishop of Jerusalem, but he was certainly the leader of the local congregation and perhaps even the leader of the entire Christian church as far as they had that defined. Now, we see evidence throughout the, the epistles of Paul that there wasn't a strict hierarchy. It was more like those who could step in, stepped in and appointed other leaders and trained them as they felt guided by the Holy Spirit. And that certainly appears to be what we see going on in Acts chapter 15. And we can assume that God was teaching them all along how to better organize, and they were probably getting more and more specific how they organized themselves. One thing we know for sure is that, that we see in Acts chapter 13, is that those who were called to the work were set apart by the laying on of hands with the power of the priesthood. So that's, a, that's an introduction to the book of James. Uh, it's probably written by, uh, before about AD, in this, in sometime in the 60s AD. And that's because we know that the temple was destroyed and there wouldn't have been, there would have been specific mention of it had it been written after that. And it could also have been written before that, possibly even well before that. There, there is a whole line of thinking that says that the epistle of James was written before any of the epistles of Paul. In any case, I don't know that we've been as interested in dating James since the release of Casino Royale. That's a joke. I had a better joke for uh, dating Hebrews, but I forgot to use it last week, so I had to, I had to fall back on my joke about dating James, so I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, 
Also, another thing I forgot to celebrate last week was our 100th track as uh, in our podcast, and that's an exciting milestone. However, since I forgot it, I will celebrate our 100th normal episode. So there have been five, four, four I think five or six uh, special episodes. So near the end of the year, we'll hit 100 normal episodes, and uh, that's when we'll celebrate our 100th episode. But I appreciate those of you listeners who have emailed me to congratulate me about 100 tracks. Uh, it, I, I am very proud and humbled by uh, the reception that the podcast is receiving. And we encourage you to share this podcast with your friends. Give us a five-star review if you can on iTunes or on Facebook. That helps us to find new listeners. So let's begin talking about James chapter 1. James jumps right in and says, after he after he introduces himself, he says uh, in verses 2 through 4, now you're all, I know, waiting for me to get to verse 5, that famous verse that inspired the entire restoration of the gospel, and we will get there. But let's consider it in context and understand it a little better. So these, these are very important verses. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So before we, and that leads us right into verse 5. So before we even talk about verse 5, we're already talking about perfection, and James brings this concept of perfection up again and again. This is, this word that he uses for perfection or for perfect is another, yet another uh, instance of this word teleos or, or telos, uh, depending on the form of the word, which is either alternately wholeness or completeness. So it could be that a fruit is reaching maturity. Uh, we've talked many times about an acorn turning into an oak tree. That is its telos. So when the acorn reaches the state of being an oak tree, it is now perfect according to the, this definition. But also wholeness. So if you are to, if you were to act in accordance with your beliefs, and if your if your words match your actions, then you are in a state of integrity or wholeness according to Hebrew philosophy. The word in the Old Testament is tamim, and the word in the New Testament or in Greek is is teleos. So, but it's the same concept, this concept of wholeness, and it matches your uh, that your beliefs match your actions, that you're the same inside and out, that you are whole and complete. So these two definitions of perfect, they walk hand in hand, they're in tandem. But going back to verse 2, when he says, count it joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now that this word uh, temptations, if you remember, early in the book of Matthew, we talked about Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And that word was perazzo, that that trying. It's more like proving, as we read in the third chapter of Abraham, we will prove them now uh, Abraham is seeing the, the intelligences that existed before the world was, and God says, we will prove them now herewith to see if they will do all the things that the Lord their God shall command them. So that word proving is closer, the way we would receive that word in English, it's closer to the meaning of this word temptations. So what James is actually saying is, count it joy when you are subjected to the test. And by the test, uh, that could mean the test of life, the test of your faith, or that moment where everything that you believe has to be laid on the line. Again and again throughout the New Testament, we have the example of Abraham, and the book of James is no, uh, is no exception. 
in verse, in, sorry, in chapter two, verse twenty-three, uh, he again brings up the the example of Abraham and how he was somebody who put his faith on the line and acted according to what he believes, although it would have cost him everything. So this is an example of somebody who is subjected to the test. Knowing this, that the trying, which is also a form of the word perasmos or perazzo, which is um, the test, right? So the trying of your faith or the proving of your faith worketh patience. So if you're willing, the, the point of these verses is this. If you're willing to, to have patience or to make a choice that you believe in God when you are subjected to the test, then you then that is the perfect work of patience, and you yourself will also be made perfect and entire, wanting nothing. That is the context that takes us into this verse 5. So James begins right away. You have a choice. When you fall into the test, then you can choose to believe in God. That will bring about patience in you. If you have patience, then you yourself will be perfect. You will reach your telos. But, verse 5, but if you lack wisdom... You can, you can ask God, because God gives wisdom to those who ask that of him. He doesn't, he's not going to, and it says here, he upbraideth not, meaning he's not going to scold you for asking wisdom, for admitting that you don't already have all the answers, but it shall be given him if you choose to believe that God will give it to you. So here is another choice, because uh, again, that we're going to get some context. So verse 5 is, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Then it goes on to say, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Now this is a little bit, first it's encouraging, and then it's discouraging, right? It says, God giveth to men liberally, Unless you have the smallest doubt when you ask, and then God's not going to give you a single thing, right? So this this can be interpreted strictly, but I don't think that's what James intended. What he means is we have a choice when we ask for wisdom from God. We have a choice to believe that God is real, that he is going to answer us, and that when his blessings come down, it is the blessing that we need. Now, I was pondering uh, because Thanksgiving's coming up, I had the opportunity this morning to ponder on gratitude. And I guess the thought that keeps sticking with me is, when we have a blessing that we are in need of from God, we ask over and over again. It might take years at times. We keep asking, we keep asking. But there's a time when we stop asking. And that time is when we receive it. It doesn't matter how much faith you have in God, and it doesn't matter how much you want that blessing. When he gives it to you, you are not going to keep praying for that blessing. And that statement might not be 100% true. If, For example, if you are sick and you're asking for health and then you uh, receive your health restored to you and then you continue to ask for health, that's not really what I'm talking about. But let's say that there's a blessing that you can only receive one time. And so you pray to ask God for it. He gives it to you. And then why would you keep asking for it, right? So the, the lack of the blessing is what prompts you to pray to God and to focus on God. So the Nephites, for example, when they were being, uh, let's let's take the example of those who followed Alma the Elder when he fled from the, the lands of the wicked King Noah. And they're enslaved by the Lamanites and they're praying for their freedom. 
and then they eventually, they've, they're given strength to endure, but they keep praying for their freedom, and eventually it comes suddenly. They can sneak out in the middle of the night. The Lamanites are uh, held in a deep sleep by God, and they're able to escape. They don't keep praying for their freedom at that point, that it's been granted to them. And so the, I guess the philosophical point I'm trying to make is that when we are wanting, when we have the lack of a blessing, it's very easy for us to focus on God. And gratitude is the continuation of that focus. So once a blessing arrives, the, the natural human tendency is for us to shift our focus from God to ourselves, from God to our present lives. And we, he's given us everything we need, and therefore we don't need him anymore. And gratitude is the acknowledgement that God has given us something, maybe not in the future, but in the past. Now, because all times are present before God, you can imagine how it must feel to have, first of all, he wants to give us blessings, but to have his children dedicated to him, focused on him, and Putting their, putting their minds, putting their lives in order so that they can receive blessings. And then when he bestows the blessing, they forget him and look the other way and begin to think about other things or focus their hearts upon the actual blessing rather than the giver of the blessings. In, I, I would imagine that that hurts, that the feelings that God has about that is one of pain. And therefore, gratitude is is the ability to continue this focus on God even after we receive the blessing, that our hearts stay in the same place before and after God blesses us. So this, uh, these first verses 2 through 8 kind of flow in one sequence, which is you are going to receive trials in your lives. And during those trials, you're going to have patience. During the trials, you're going to need wisdom. You're going to ask of God the choice during that time is that you can believe God is going to reward you, that he's with you, that patience is worth worthwhile, that when you ask him, he will respond and give you wisdom. And then the, the challenge is that you remember God when he blesses you. Now let's talk a little bit about what happened to Joseph Smith. Uh, Joseph Smith was a young man who was so confused by and we've been studying exactly what Joseph Smith was studying now for two years. We've been studying the Old and New Testaments, and you can see as we've as we've talked about all the ways in which various words can be translated and all the doctrines that can be derived from each different translation and each different interpretation. Joseph was struggling to know which of those was right and which of the churches that had been given rise to by all of those different understandings of the Bible. Which of them actually encapsulated God's will? Now, uh, so there, there are two amazing lessons in the story of Joseph Smith. One is that the Bible is so powerful that, or first of all, the Bible uh, has enough ambiguity in it to hurt us, right? Because Joseph Smith did not know which church or which belief system was true. And it was impossible for him to arrive at that knowledge with the Bible alone. Nevertheless, the other lesson is that it was the Bible itself that came to Joseph's aid. In the form of this verse, the way Joseph described it was that never before had any scripture entered into the heart of man with such power as this scripture did at that time to mine. And I don't know that we should take those words 100% literally. In other words, God revealed to Joseph that he had 
just had the single most powerful experience with the scriptures in human history. I don't think that's how we interpret that verse. What we interpret it as is Joseph using perhaps a little bit of hyperbole, meaning he couldn't possibly have known whether anybody else had had a stronger reaction ever to any scripture. Basically what he's saying is, I can't imagine anyone having a stronger feeling or having a stronger reaction of of understanding of having the Holy Ghost enlighten their understanding more than happened to me at that moment. Now, that's good news for us because what it means, if, if that's the way that he meant this, what it means is that we can have that same experience, that scriptures, we can hope that some somewhere in the standard works or perhaps in the general conference report, there is a scripture that will enter into our hearts with that same amount of power. And the the actual lesson might be different, but the effect will be the same because we will be arriving at the feet of God in search of wisdom according to the process outlined in James chapter 1, verse 5, which is, if we lack wisdom, let us ask of God. So somewhere out there, there's a scripture that, that potentially has the power to enter into your heart with the same force, with the same penetrating deep surety and profundity that with the same penetrating understanding that this scripture entered into Joseph's heart. And then you might be invited into some action the way Joseph was. He, he was invited to go and pray and ask of God, and that might happen for you if some scripture enters into your heart. So we've learned now so far, just, just in a few short verses, we've learned that God is going to subject us to the test. Really, J- James has... Uh, he has revealed the entire purpose of our existence, which is to be subjected to the test. And then patience can have its perfect work. Then he starts talking about, uh, and, he, and he starts talking about the tools that God will give us, wisdom and patience. Now, wisdom is a key word. Whenever you see the word wisdom, you can know that someone in the position of one of James's readers would immediately have summoned into his head the eighth chapter of Proverbs, which is this, and among other places in the in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, where uh, wisdom is is almost like uh, personification. It's an aspect of God that has a personality, that has will, that that is almost independent from God. In much the way that John describes the Word, though we know that the Word is part of God, John says the Word was with God and the Word was God. Well, that's very similar to how wisdom is treated in the Old Testament. So I encourage you to read the eighth chapter of Proverbs. And wisdom there is a a woman. Wisdom finds her work by motivating men to do righteous works, by motivating them to use their knowledge uh, in accordance with the will of God. That's my paraphrase of that chapter. So uh, Lady Wisdom, as she's often called, is is the image that would be brought into someone's mind as they read about this. So that's another thing that this verse, this James chapter 1, verse 5, should bring up in your mind. If any of you lack wisdom, in other words, if any of you lack the companionship of this aspect of God, this wonderful feminine part of God that can bring all things to your remembrance, as Jesus described the Holy Ghost doing, and can motivate you in right action, and, in, and how to make decisions. If any of you lack this companionship, then you can ask of God, and he'll give it to you. Now, interestingly enough, James, uh, he, his, his thoughts here have a flow to them. So once he talks about 
the the test that God has set up and the tools that we have to find our way through, then he starts talking about what kind of test it is. So he, the first thing he mentions is wealth and riches of the world. And when you're tempted with riches, first of all, if you should lose your riches, this is actually good a good outcome for you. If you go from being rich to being poor, then God has blessed you. He's made it easier for you to enter heaven. And conversely, if you're poor and you and God has blessed you with riches, then you should rejoice. In either case, you can find a blessing in it that God has intended for your ultimate and eternal good. This is this is quite an interesting way of looking at, at the exchange of money. Um, and James finishes his description of the test by saying, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. This is verse 12. When he is tried, and, and tried there, uh, you can just change in your mind when he is proven, right? Because being when you prove something, you put it to the test. But when you try something, it doesn't, that word alone doesn't convey what happened, the results of the test. But when something is proved, then it, it has the connotation that it's passed the test. So I think that's a little better word to use here. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is proved, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So then it, it talks about how God would never, it goes on to talk about how God would never tempt us to do something evil. In other words, we we have a way out. We're, we're not foreordained or preordained or predestinated to any sort of sinful behavior. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted of evil, evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, we talked about how the the work of God is to bring us to our telos and to make us perfect, and patience is a big part of that. Now, Paul start, or I'm sorry, James starts talking about what sin will do. Uh, in verse 14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now that word finished, that should be also a little key word to you. It should set off an alarm. I wonder, you should think, is that word finished, does it also have to do with being perfect? Turns out it's part of this, it's a yet another form of the word teleos, meaning perfect. So both patience and sin have a way of maturing or becoming whole and complete. So we already learned what patience will do to you. It will make you mature in the purpose that God has for you. If you are if you are an acorn, you will be an oak tree. Now we know what we are. We know what kind of acorns we are. We're in the image of God. So we can be made perfect if we let patience have its perfect work. What is sin? If sin has its perfect work, what happens, right? So this is the question right here that will be answered. First of all, the word sin as used most often in the Old Testament is the word hamartia, which is actually an archery term for uh, an archer missing the target. So the word of sin is when you miss the target. And that I think that should allow each of us to be a little more compassionate towards ourselves because so often we put this moral... Well, and there should be a moral component in sin, but so often for those little sins that beset us all the time, we put this moral component in. In other words, uh, not only did I make a bad choice, but I am bad. And that is precisely what Satan would have us believe. He would have us mix shame with our sorrow. I missed the target. I made a, a choice that I knew was against God's will. 
But not only did I miss the target, but I am the kind of archer that always misses the target. This thought is what takes us, and it's a choice. That thought is a choice. That is the thought that takes us from sin or from lust, right? Lust begins when we allow ourselves to, uh, it says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So that thought, if we allow it to become perfect or completed, if we allow that thought to reach its telos, then it bringeth forth death. If we allow Satan to convince us, because we miss the mark, that we can never hit the mark, then that bringeth forth death. We will totally separate ourselves from God in that moment. And that is the kind of choice that turns our face completely away from God, that I am incapable of pleasing God. Now, you notice in the beginning of the chapter, God says, let, uh, or James says, let patience have its work so that you can be made perfect. And here, uh, he's also saying, if you let sin have its work, then you will be brought to death. That It's such a kind way of, of phrasing it, and yet it's so clear that the choice is entirely up to us. James has laid out before us in this first chapter the entire gospel. And he's also brought in the idea that if we are too fixated upon the things of this world, then that is the nature of the choice. If wealth is in, and glories of men, if those are our focus, if those become our God, then we are letting lust have its enticement of us, and then it will beget sin, hamartia, this missing of the mark. And when that is perfected, then it will bring us unto death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. James finishes. Now, the way out of all of this is to be a doer of the word. As, uh, as James says in verse 22, be ye doers of the word. This is where we get the title of our lesson from. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. That's really the, where the rubber meets the road. So James is not telling us anything new about how we believe in Jesus. He's not saying, I've got Paul, Paul was really good at this, right? Theology. Paul would say, we need to understand that Jesus is a new kind of high priest, and here's how Jesus fits in with the prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, etc. Jesus is the head of the body. All of these metaphors that he used, James is not heavy on, into any of that. What James says is, just be a doer of the word. You're all hearers of the word, but some of you will be doers and some of you won't. If you can be a doer of the word, then you are letting patience have its perfect work. And here's, here are the things that you should focus on most. So if Paul's gospel is a very metaphysical one or, or a very intellectual one, then James's is a very practical one, which is follow what Jesus taught and basically follow what we learn in the book of Proverbs. Follow this wisdom that we receive from the, from the ancient prophets and follow the way that Jesus interpreted that, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus said a lot of things like, we need to turn the measuring scales of this world upside down. We need to take those who are poor in spirit and poor in wealth and those who are humble before God, those who are meek, and we need to place them at the top of our esteem because they're the ones who are going to be the most faithful to God, the most obedient to the commandments. And those who are perhaps more honored of men, but who are so prideful that they can never do what's right, they're always going to make a selfish choice. Those are the people who are going to be at the bottom of God's esteem or, or, the, or receive or be the last in line to receive of his rewards. And this turning of things upside down is the 
the law of liberty. Now, law of liberty, that's verse 25. Whoso looketh into the perfect, again, there's that word, the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, those words, law of liberty. First of all, law and Torah are the same word for James. James was a Jerusalem Jew of the first century, the early first century A.D., and so the word law for him meant Torah. His, his native language was likely Hebrew or Aramaic. So this is what he was understanding. When he spoke, when he was talking about the law, he was talking about the Torah at the same time. Now that doesn't mean that it only means the books of Moses. What it means is that he's speaking very specifically about the commandments of God when he says the perfect law of liberty. In other words, the commandments of God, what God has commanded us to do, they bring freedom. These, this, the obedience to God, being a doer of the word, it's not just something that, is, uh, that we do in order to please this ambiguous God who, who has these, um, these rules that we don't know the reason for. The, the purpose and the telos of the commandments of God are to bring us liberty. This, uh, this phrase is repeated then in, in chapter 2, in verse 12. Again, he's talking about uh, James is talking about the are we are we accepting those people who are the rich people more and we're putting our esteem of them when they show up in church are we putting our esteem of them above those who are poor if so we are being the so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty so the Torah of liberty the commandments of God that lead to freedom if we are willing to see people the way that God sees them then we will be judged by the Torah of liberty. Now back to chapter 1. Uh, first of all, I want to point out one of the coolest phrases in all, in all Scripture. Uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and sur- superfluity of naughtiness. So uh, parents, uh, when your kids are not behaving, I think you should draw attention to their su- superfluity of naughtiness. That would be uh, very educational for them, I'm sure. Uh, but joking aside, uh, the final verse in chapter 1 is, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, you'll notice that in that verse are the two aspects of what Jesus said was most important. Jesus said when he was asked what is the most powerful commandment, the most important commandment in the law, he said, Love the Lord thy God with all their heart, might, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Here it is in this verse. So James is not making this stuff up. It's all based in the, in the teachings of Jesus. First of all, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. So widows and orphans, take care of those who can't take care of themselves. In other words, love thy neighbor as thyself, and keep yourself unspotted from the world. In other words, don't focus on the things of this world, but focus on the things of the world to come. Be devoted to God. This is a perfect description of loving the Lord thy God with heart, might, mind, and strength. So even though it's not, he doesn't say it explicitly, it's very clear that he is explaining to us how do we keep that commandment of Jesus to love God and to love our neighbor. It's all here in this in these couple of verses. So in quick succession, here in the first chapter, we have that God is going to perfect us by giving us patience, and then when we choose to respond well to the test, 
then we are made perfect like him. But if instead we choose to be enticed by sin, if, it, if we choose to believe that not hitting the mark is the same as not being able to hit the mark, then we will be perfected unto death. Therefore, we need to be doers of the word. We need to pay attention to this Torah, the commandments of God, because they lead to freedom. When we do, the first thing that we're going to do is be motivated to be generous with others as God is generous with us and to be devoted to him forever. This entire chapter, that's the lesson of the first chapter of James. And then each specific, there are probably uh, 10 or or so sections that you could, and and something that you could do is print out the book of James and you could spend an hour just going through and and grouping verses together with little parentheses and say, oh, James right here seems to be beginning a little mini lesson and then finishing one. So he talks about not paying attention to wealth. He talks about faith without works is dead. These are little mini lessons, but each of them pulls from an idea introduced in chapter one. So we've spent most of our time talking about chapter one and appropriately so, because that's the most important chapter in the book of James. Now I sort of covered already the first 12 or so verses of chapter two, but I wanna, I wanna talk about something. Uh, verse 10, now this, this is something that has tripped a lot of people up, this idea. James, he's talking about how people can be obedient to one part of the law and not the other. And then in verse 10, he says, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now this has given rise, this verse has given rise to the interpretation, the false interpretation, that God sees all sin equally, that there aren't any degradations of sin. If you're a jaywalker, it's the same thing as if you commit adultery, right? And, and it, it, you could be forgiven for having this interpretation. Uh, in verse 11, James says, he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Now, what he didn't say was, it's the same. It's of the same severity to commit adultery and to kill. But a lot of people have interpreted it that way. So let's look at, in verse 13, that says, For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. This whole, this entire exchange is not about the fact that when you transgress one sin, when you commit one tiny sin, you're guilty of the entire law. Uh, that, that is kind of what he's saying. But the point is, once you've broken the law, you're lost to God through your own strength. The, the entire point is to stress our reliance upon God for mercy. It's not to say that when you've committed this tiny sin, you might as well go commit the biggest sin you can think of. And that 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 idea, if this is interpreted that way, I can think of very few things that are more harmful. Now, look for that idea, because you will find it in today's political and philosophical arguments. You will find the idea that one sin, uh, once you've committed one sin, uh, that it's, it's just as bad. You, you've broken your ties with God or you've broken your ties with whatever moral code that you're measuring yourself against and therefore you're guilty of the entire thing. Now, the point of that idea is that you are reliant then upon mercy. You cannot fix your own sin. God has to forgive you. And in verse 13, the, (laughs) the lesson is that please, Choose to have mercy yourself. If you can just choose to have mercy, then God will have mercy on you. This is what 
James is trying to get at when he says that you're guilty of the whole law. He's basically trying to make everyone feel like they can't wait to show mercy to everyone so that they can receive mercy. And if that is how you receive this, then you've received it correctly. Otherwise, if you take it to mean, uh, once again, if you if you take it to mean I'm a an archer who cannot hit the target, then and therefore I'm going to turn away from even trying, then you've missed the point. And you've chosen to miss the point, and that will lead to death. Now, the the rest of chapter 2 is James talking about, and I, and I know you've all probably read this exchange where he says, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. This, again, there's a, a false dichotomy here. There's a there's a controversy that has arisen around the interpretation of this chapter that isn't valid. And the interpretation is that James is trying to put faith as a saving attribute and works on the same level. And on the that, that we should be arguing about whether it's faith or works that saves us. Uh, this was never James's intent. James never was saying works will save you. It is totally universally understood by all of the authors of the New Testament that it's grace, it's the grace of God that saves us through Christ. There is never any misunderstanding about, about that with any of them anywhere. But what James is saying is that what works do is they help you to properly identify what kind of faith that you have. If you have no works, then you can conclude that you don't actually have the kind of faith that will save you. So faith leads to salvation. Faith leads you to the grace of God. And as Paul said, even that faith is not your own. It's a gift of God. So don't think that your works are going to save you. But what works can help you do is to know where on the path you are. If you don't have any of the works that would lead you to God, that would that would be in alignment with the Torah of freedom, then you don't actually have the kind of faith that God wanted you to have, that he gave to you. You have chosen to turn away from it. Now, it appears that I'm wrong about that a little bit later on when he says in verse 24, he says, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, uh, that would that would seem to say that I'm wrong, that it's the works that justify us before God. But if you do a little bit of research on that word justify, basically what it means is um, where it says, verse 23, The scripture was fulfilled which which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So that's what it means to be justified, that you are imputed for righteousness, that you are seen, you are considered righteous. In other words, that you've been judged and found worthy. So works can do that for you. They, can sh- they are the proof of your faith. They are the showing, they're the evidence of your faith. faith what works do is they identify your faith. And that is, that, that is not contradicted by these words. Uh, it just appears to be because of, the way, because of that word justified instead of considered righteous. So you can, you can kind of switch those words out if you want to. So uh, at the bottom there in verse 26... James chapter 2, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In other words, your faith is like the body, and your works are the spirit inside. They are what give it life. 
so that your so there is no contradiction between faith and works. There's no competition. One identifies and gives credibility to the other. Now, in James chapter three, I I think everybody should read this chapter. It talks about the tongue and how important it is to speak kindly. The tongue in verse five, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. The tongue, in verse 8, the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith, curse we men, which were made after the similitude of God. So this is uh, him expounding upon one of the themes that he brings out in in the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So this is James taking this theme and bringing it out even more. And then chapter 4, what James does is he expands on the idea that we should dedicate and uh, devote ourselves to God. In other words, be not spotted, be not taken up, be not overly concerned with the things of this world, but to recognize the generosity of God and to be generous in turn toward God and towards each other. Uh, and he mentions in verse 1 of chapter 4, James says, Whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? So remember, he said that if we uh, give way to temptation, then our lusts come in and we're enticed. And then when we're enticed, then the then lust giveth begets sin. And when sin is perfected, then it brings death. So now we're, now we're expanding on that idea from chapter 1. But in verse uh, 8, he gives us the, the remedy for this, which is draw nigh to God. Or we'll start in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse, and you'll, <laughs> this is actually a wonderful verse that is found in uh, the... There is a um, parallel verse found in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 88, verse 63, draw near unto me and I will draw near unto you. So that would be, I, I think most of us will have that verse echoing in our minds as we read this verse. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So the remedy here is humility. Humble yourselves, he says, before in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And finally, James spends some more time talking about the the misery and the sin and the pride that can be caused by focusing too much on the things of this world, especially riches and pleasure. So we should be patient with each other. We should, we should have the, the kind of things that we have on earth, we should have them in common. We should confess our faults to one another. We should not be so prideful that we consider ourselves better than each other. So this is kind of the pride chapter. And I would uh, suggest reading it at the very end. He talks about Elijah. And the the New Testament way of saying Elijah is Elias. So in verse uh, 17, he says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, this is uh, him expanding on the idea in verse 16. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that ye may be healed. 
And by healed, he means that you can be reconciled, that your love can flow between people. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, a righteous man is not somebody who's perfect in the way that we think, like they've gotten rid of all of their sins. What that means is somebody who's made this choice to let patience be working on him and who has made the choice that when we sin, we don't turn away from God, but that we correct ourselves and we keep trying to hit the mark. If, you're, if you consider an archer who's missed the target, you're going to keep practicing rather than giving up. That's the, that's the prayer of a righteous man or prayer of a righteous woman. And he says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, meaning God really does care what you ask him. Uh, so then he gives this amazing example of Elijah, but then says, uh, look, we also have to be, we, we want to heal ourselves, uh, we want to heal our relationships, because, and th- this is how he ends his entire book. So this is important, because James could have, he's basically ex- expounding to us all of the important things that we need to have on our minds as we try to keep the teachings of Jesus in accordance with the wisdom that we received in the Old Testament. And he finishes with this, that when we look out for each other, if we were to bring somebody back from their wayward ways, if they are in the process of having sin perfect itself in them, and we turn them back towards the Lord, listen to this, this is a wonderful promise. Let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love, not in the, not in the uh, Doctrine and covenant sense of hiding sins, but I would love to hide a multitude of sins. And what he means by that is that he will have God to cover up with his atonement a multitude of sins and save a soul from death, which is the perfection of, of sin in that person. So if we will turn somebody from sin, we'll keep the sin from perfecting itself in them and thereby save a soul from death. So back to chapter one, which is where we should end with James. I gave a quick summary of this chapter, but uh, there are a couple of verses here I want to end with, and they're verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down. Now that should that should ring a little alarm bell, not alarm bell, but that should make a connection in your mind to Moroni chapter 7. Every good thing and the anything that convinces you to believe in Christ comes from God, comes from Christ. And you can tell good things from evil as easily as you can tell daylight from a dark night. So that's uh we're now we're in James 1 verse 17. I'll start again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And what that means is God is not, there's no darkness in him like as in a shifting shadow. He is the constant, he's the Father of constant light. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, we are the most cherished of God's creations. Everything that he has created on this earth was to give rise to man and to enable us to pass the test that he has set before us. And so the rest of the teachings of James are to show us that the commandments of God actually free us. They enable this perfect work that patience will be able to perform in us that will bring us back to God. Now, I'll conclude with a reference to a talk 
that was given by Elder Maxwell, and this is years ago. It's it's not a general conference talk. It's actually a talk that you'll only be able to find on speeches.byu.edu, but it's a talk on patience, and it's from 1979. And the most memorable phrase for me in this talk, I, I, I suggest you listen to it. You'll So search for just Maxwell and patience, and you'll see it. The title of the talk is Patience. But the most memorable phrase for me is without the veil. He repeats it many times. And he, and he says, without the veil, the, I'm paraphrasing now, without the veil, we would not be able to draw closer to God. Without the veil, we wouldn't be able to have a choice between good and evil. Without the veil, there are some rewards that just could not arrive to us. So again, Elder Maxwell, like James, is drawing a connection between a test, which is the veil, right? The veil is what makes the test possible because uh, if we were in the presence of God, we have all the answers. But as soon as the veil is between us and our former lives, then we are able to be tested and tried. So because the veil is there, we are able to exercise patience. The veil is what subjects us to a world in which we live in time. And time is what requires us to think and to choose. This is a wonderful talk, and it goes right in line with the first chapter of James, and I would recommend listening to it, especially the later part where he starts talking about the importance of the veil. Now, if we can get in our minds the idea that the veil is a blessing, we can understand that God has a reason for all of his commandments. And the reason for those commandments, as Jesus says, is that ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.